0: podcast, and you're listening to the song Tides and Gravity by the band Links and the Servants of Song. Now, you might not believe me if I told you this song was recorded by the same guy that recorded Joe Satriani, but it's true. You may also not believe that this recording was done in one take with a single stereo microphone, and the band is crowded all around the mic, but that's also true. Today, we sit down with John Cunaberti, who was gracious enough to lend his time to talk about engineering, to talk about vibe, to talk about his really cool one-mic project. So stick around. You are sure to learn a lot. and You're sure to hear some great stories from John. So here in a minute, we will get to the interview. But for now, just enjoy this song. Well, John, thanks again for taking the time to sit down with us and talk about music and recording and engineering. Um, I guess the first thing I want to talk about is just your history as an engineer. How'd you
1: get started? Why do you do what you do? Well, um, like like a lot of engineers, most of the ones I know, you, you know, we start as musicians. Right. In fact, I can't, I can't hardly imagine being an engineer and not being a musician. But, I mean, there are some. Who aren't sure. Um, you know, I started, uh, as a musician playing drums in a local rock bands that was in the, uh, middle seventies, eventually ended up doing some recording, um, demos for, uh, CBS records at the time. And I immediately kind of fell in love with, um, The sort of the technical side of the recording. You know, as a drummer, you go lay your parts and then you hang around while everybody does everything else. So So you get to watch, yeah. Yeah, I I had time hanging out in the control room and thinking, man, I think I would rather be doing this than actually being a drummer. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But of course, in those days, uh, the recording studios were all owned by record companies and um, it was a long process to go from, you know, being... A drummer in an up-and-coming rock band to being a, an employed recording engineer it wasn't sure. something you could do easily.
0: Yeah, and there wasn't really home recording, you know.
1: <laughs> no, it was I wasn't going to go down to a guitar center and buy a recording studio and set it up the next <laughs> <Right>. day. <laughs> you know, so it took me maybe ten years before I was actually in a control room running a session. Hmm. And along the way, um, I migrated myself out of being a musician and started doing live sound, you know, and I, you know, I kind of worked up that food chain to a point where I was uh, touring um, with major label artists, mostly doing monitors. Hmm. Yeah. on stage monitor mixing was a new thing at the time. Yeah. And I was working with a company that had designed and built some of the first multi-mix Monitoring consoles specifically for on-stage monitoring, where you know the singer and the bass player and the drummer and the keyboard player—they could all have separate mixes. Up up until then, they all shared one or two mixes. Right. But now we were we we're getting into eight and ten mixes. So I was able to carve a niche out for myself of being an on-stage monitor mixer early on. Hmm. One of the last acts I worked with was Stevie Wonder. Oh wow. Yeah, it was really kind of an exciting time, but I still wanted to be in the studio. Sure. And a friend of mine decided that he wanted to build a studio, and he was a guitar dealer, a vintage guitar dealer. Even at the time, you know, getting into the late 70s, there were still people interested, or, or there were people then even interested in vintage guitars. And he just sort of moved from buying and selling guitars to buying and selling used recording equipment, which was now starting to become available because recording studios were, were becoming independent. Right. and. And a lot of the recording studios that were owned by record companies were selling off a lot of their gear, Hmm. um, not only in the United States, but in Europe. So he would travel all over the country and travel throughout Europe, going into basements, going to radio stations and buying used recording equipment and then he'd bring it back to the United States and he had himself a nice little business going on. So he decided to build a recording studio and it was all built with all this used and oftentimes broken recording equipment. (laughs) And um, I found myself a home there and I began recording local bands, mostly friends I knew, and started to develop a reputation for doing it pretty well. And then some of the other bands that were on small record labels um in the mostly in the San Francisco Bay area started coming to the studio and I started building a reputation and you know one thing led to an, an, another and here you know almost 40 years later I'm still doing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, that's kind of just, that's putting it in a nutshell. Right. Um, it's a progression that you don't see anymore because of, like I said earlier, if you want to be a recording engineer and you've got, I mean, really only a few thousand dollars, you can go out and buy a recording studio. Yeah. And 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 set up in your basement or, or some space somewhere and start selling studio time or at least learning how to do it and doing it fairly, fairly quickly.
0: Right, and you so. can you don't have to buy you know, the half million dollars of equipment up front, you can buy a couple thousand and then add on as you, you know, especially with things like 500 series and with plugins now, you know, you don't have to go and get, like before, I mean, in the 70s, you had to get a console. I mean, you just, that was like, you didn't have a choice almost, you know what I mean? It was like.
1: That's correct, yeah.
0: That's how you do it, (laughs) you know, like. Yeah. uh, How how are we supposed to record all these inputs, you know? And now it's like, well, I'm going to get an interface that has, you know, eight stock preamps and use those for a little bit and then add on some outboard ones. And then,
1: you know, it's so much more
0: customizable now, which, yeah. you know, it's good I mean, and bad, I guess. Uh,
1: the, the the first recording consoles, they weren't recording consoles. They were really front of house consoles. They were like, uh, right. you know, uh, Soundcraft 24-channel board that was really designed to mix 24 channels to to two, right. with some monitor sends that you could use for effect sends, sure. you know, a lot of a lot of them had buses, so you could do, maybe record eight channels at once or something like that, but early on, a lot of the, the consoles we had to use, because they're really the only ones available, were primarily made for PA systems.
0: Right, right. And then, you know, 60s and 70s, uh, with the advent of the API and the Quad 8s and the Mm-hmm. You know all that stuff. The game really changed big time, and of course, in the '80s with the SSL, that really changed everything.
1: <laughs> yes, it did.
0: EQ and compression and gating on every track. I mean, yes,
1: and the automation and the total recall. Oh yeah, I mean those were the things that really was a game changer.
0: Unheard of, right? Now, so tell me, how how did uh, your career take off from? Say uh, recording the local bands, you know, when you had just started working in this uh, studio, how did that transition into working with bigger acts? I mean, just working your way up the food chain, working with different artists, you know friend tells a friend and they yeah. tell another friend.
1: <laughs> yeah, a lot of that yeah <laughs> I mean some of it you know some of it was luck right um, the first band I did that had any kind of like cachet or or record company support were the dead Kennedys mm. and they were. They were just a punk band that had a handful of singles that were doing well, but they weren't like, they weren't like super famous at the time. We were talking about the late 70s. Right. And so when I started doing their records, it opened the door to other acts like that, and it created a kind of a steady stream of um, wannabes or acts of that uh, type and maybe even other acts on that label. Sure. So and I think that happens a lot with people who happen to find themselves working with somebody or an artist or a band that is um, has become famous, it opens the door to people coming to you wanting to work with you because of the work you've done with those people. Sure. And, you know, the next dozen bands may never be as famous as that first band, but it it, it brings in work, it creates experience, and it brings in uh, income for you so you can pay your bills until the next big act walks through the door.
0: Right. Now, did you, did you find that um, your experience as uh, a monitor engineer got you any clients on the other side of the glass?
1: Um, not... Not in a direct sense, but in a and oftentimes in an indirect sense, where I'd be working a show and a and a recording artist or or a band would come out and they would perform th- that I liked. Right. And I would go to them maybe after the show or after their set, and I'd say, "Hey, me and my buddy, we have this little recording studio. You guys are local. Why don't you come up?" Next weekend, and let's, you know, fuck around. Sure. <laughs> you know, let's let's do some recording. Right. Because, you know, I like your music, and, you know, we, I, I don't even know if I was even charging a lot of these guys the first couple of times around, because I just wanted to.
2: Sure.
1: You know, I was making money being a, a, a live engineer. Right, that right. That was really, yeah, that's how I was paying my bills, and the studio was just kind of a training ground for me. So then the bands would come up, and we'd spend a couple of days with them, and we'd do some recordings. It was in a process like that. Where I met Joe Satriani, mm. he was in a band called the Squares, right? And they were opening, and they were opening up for somebody I don't even know who it was, and I just thought that Joe was like most amazing guitar player <laughs> ever. <laughs> and I went sure. up to him afterwards the show, and I said, "Hey man, why don't you bring your band to the studio?" So we. Began our 40-year relationship <laughs> right there on the spot. <laughs> you know, so that wow. was another opportunity where, you know, the records I did with Joe opened up the doors to other acts that wanted, you know, that wanted to work with me. And right. again, the next 20 acts were never as big as Joe. <laughs> sure. But it it created a, uh, it helped me to de- uh, develop my reputation and it created a cash Flow, which is important. Sure. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, and so tell us a uh, tell us a bit about working with Joe Satriani. I mean, obviously he's a fantastic guitar player, and you know you guys have worked together a lot. You know, what's what's that process like working with someone like Joe?
1: Well, you would have to pick a a period, and then I could tell you because the, because Joe's career, you know, he started like a, I mean, the first record we did was in 1980. Six, I think was his first record, uh, Not of This Earth. Hmm. And um, I did a record for him last year. So if, if you go, if if you'll start looking through the periods, the way we made those records are all different. Hmm. And and how his success has uh, changed the way we make records, the way we approach records, the kinds of budgets we have and, and the advantages that Come with success, have all affected the way not only we work together, but the kinds of records we we make. Hmm. So early on, it was just Joe and I, a drummer who programmed a drum machine, and it was just the three of us. Huh. And then yeah, and then it and then because that's all we could afford to do. Right, right. From there, it just continued to expand where in the next couple of records, we were able to spend the kind of time and energy and money to record you know, the musicians uh, together at the same time the, the, where the first couple of records, it was really one track at a time type of recording. Right. And then later on, we were able to put together musicians around Joe and build a band around him for a particular record. Hmm. And every record is slightly different. There's some that are that may have the same personnel, but for the most part, every record Joe makes, he goes way out of his way to make it different than the last interesting so he yes. doesn't play
0: he doesn't prefer to play with the band that he plays live, or does the band that he plays live with also change?
1: that's correct
0: hmm. interesting
1: Some of it is logistics, some of it is financial, some of it is artistic decisions right it's not any particular formula it's just that he's an artist and he wants to do something really artistic each time and when you think about instrumental guitar recording artist <laughs> i mean that's <laughs> that right there is so limited and what you can do. So it really puts a lot of pressure on him to really come up with with interesting formulas and interesting people. And, and, it, and as long as he keeps bringing in different people and different influences, he can keep changing it up and making it interesting, not just for himself, which is essential, but for his fans right. to continue to grow with him and to bring in new people too. Yeah. Now, so, would
0: he, uh, when working on a record with a new band or a new group of personnel, would he sometimes use different people for different songs or mostly pick one for a record?
1: I would say mostly pick pick the um, musicians for the whole album. Mm. There, there were times, like on the album Flying in a Blue Dream, I think you're going to see a lot of different people on different songs. But I think ultimately he always wanted a great band to perform the album. sure. And I think that was always the ultimate goal. And we tried to get there early on, not always successfully, Mm. but it was later on when, when he became more successful and he had larger budgets, and we could afford to bring in, you know, people like Simon Phillips or the Bizonet Brothers or whoever to come in and actually spend the time to actually cut a whole album. And that's pretty much the formula now.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, because yeah. early on, you know, he wasn't really known as a guitar guy. You know what I mean? Now he's one of those guys. Yeah. Like when you think of the guitar guys, you know, you think of the Steve Vai and Joe Satriani and Andy Timmons and, you know, those types of guys. Right. That. You know, are now iconic guitar guys, but back then it was just, oh, look, guy with a guitar playing songs. You know, right? Um, you know, early on at least. Well, yeah, um, I mean, early
1: on, I mean, in the early '80s, there was nobody doing it. I mean, he really right. c- kind of, in a way, created a genre that continued, and as long as he continued to uh, pioneer that, other people came along and and right. also and also did it to some. To some degree. I don't think anyone has taken it to the extreme degree he has. (laughs) Um, But, I mean, that's not to say there weren't other guitar instrumental records. Blow by Blow was certainly one, and, uh, you know, there there were certainly others over the years. But, yeah, instrumental guitar rock. Records were not something people were buying <laughs> in <Right>. the eighties. <laughs> Particularly, you think about what was going on in the eighties with disco and everything.
0: Right. Well, and it's it's interesting because he kind of found a he kind of found his own little niche in the market that was like, okay, if you like Van Halen, but you want a lot more of that <laughs> and a lot more, <laughs> a lot less yeah. singing and no pop songs and just like rock guitar work check this out, you know what I mean? It was like for the people that really loved like the new and exciting things that were happening with the electric guitar um, that right. weren't hadn't ever been done before, you know what I mean? Starting in the 60s and 70s with all the psychedelic stuff and the rock stuff, it was like, it was still such a new landscape. Like we take it for granted now because we've got, you know, you can go to Guitar Center and get a, you know, multi-effects pedal that has every effect known to man. Yeah. And, you know, a couple hundred bucks. Right. But- back back then like guitar sounds were so limited of what you know it's like chorus and you know some phasers and some you know wah pedals and things like that but I mean I I always have felt like Joe Satriani's always been trying to like what weird sounds can I pull out of this instrument like what crazy otherworldly sounds can I make you know what I mean and Mm -hmm. how can I like make the listener feel like they're listening to more of a like a, a stringed instrument or a trumpet or a a voice, you know what I mean? Like it's, he pulls insane tones out of that guitar. Yes, he does. Things you never, and, and a lot of times you think he might be using a pedal and he's not.
1: <laughs> That's correct. It, it A lot of it is, um, I'd say at least two thirds of it is technique. Yeah. Just um, wild. Yeah.
0: I mean, I was watching an interview with him one time and
1: he was talking about just
0: how particular, you know, where he plays with his picking hand. He's like, oh, you know, if I just play slightly down the harmonic, you know, interaction with my thumb barely striking the string, you know, it makes it sort of false harmonic that gives it sort of a wah type thing. And it's like, mm, mm-hmm. wow, the preciseness of how exact, oh, I'm playing exactly here with my right hand. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's not just, I, you know, I could play farther down by the bridge and it's a little bit different, but I play exactly here for this exact part. <laughs> yeah, You know, and it's, it's really incredible Someone who has that much mastery of the guitar
1: Yes, he has this ability to be that ultimate technician But at the same time write songs that are accessible Sure um, in, in, a, in a pop sense In other words, melodies that one can sing to Or, or memorize Right Or remember Yeah, they're, still,
0: they're still sort of lyrical type Writing to his work, you know, like yeah, even though there's no words,
1: yeah, I really I hate it when people call him a shredder, <laughs> and that's you know, I yes, he can shred, and he often does, but that's just not um, a fair <laughs> way to you know uh, describe what Joe does, sure, I mean, he's a really, really good songwriter, right, and he understands how music. Uh, affects the human spirit. I mean, he, he. the music really comes from deep inside him and he will not let it go until he believes it can have the possibility of having that same kind of effect on other people.
0: Right. What's really fascinating about that, you know, when you say about how, how he has such a good pop sensibility, you know, if people wanna deny that, they should recall the Coldplay lawsuit. <laughs> well, yeah. It's like, so you're telling me that when Coldplay had a very similar sounding song, that's okay, that's pop music, but Joe is not, he's a shredder. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, come on, Joe. I mean, that melody is very singable. You know what I mean? It's not right. shreddy at all. I mean, and yet when Coldplay does it, oh, that's pop, that's singable. <laughs> right. <laughs> You know, but it's shreddy for some reason because it's Joe Satriani. Well,
1: listen, there's a, reason, there's a reason why Joe Satriani can tour the world and sell out those three to 5,000 seat halls night after night after night after night after night for 40 years. Right. And there's a whole lot of other guitar players who are shredders who could never do that and right. who never will do that. And I think it's because he can write a song that reaches people right. emotionally. He can he can show restraint in his playing, and he can play slow hand, and he can bend a note that makes you want to cry. Right. I mean, he can do that, and he does. And you know, the albums are constructed in a way to allow that to happen. He doesn't have to go try to prove himself as the fastest guitar player on the planet. Right. That's not important to him. Right. Well, and you know if it's
0: too if it gets too shreddy i would imagine it would be boring for him cuz it's like okay cool i you know this was fun and fast and, and impresses people but this isn't a guitar clinic you know what i mean <laughs> like yes if he's trying to play the same set night after night after night it's like who am i trying to just like impress everyone here or enjoy myself or you know what i mean like it would be strange i'm a guitar player so i would find that like if i was as good as joe It would just be boring for me, you know what I mean? Just thinking about it like that, like, oh, cool. I just shredded in front of all these people for night after night. Like, why would I do that?
1: You know? Well, I think what happens is that he knows his fans want a certain amount of that. Sure. And the way he often uh, deals with that or has fun with it, let me put it that way, is that he'll do one of his songs that are fairly contained and you know, written out. Right. Note for no I I wouldn't say he plays it note for note. There's a lot of emotion in what he plays like like a singer. But then there will come a point in the song where he may start jamming the thing out a little bit. That solo section may go twice as long or the ending of the song might morph into another song which allows him and the band to uh, go off and do some stuff where he can do Maybe some more pyrotechnic type of playing <laughs> technique, <laughs> uh, strange sounds, or you know the things that he does that the you know the kids love, right? And but he, again, even within that, he's somewhat restrained about it. It's all orchestrated in the course of a two-hour show. Sure, he, he's not going to come out and start doing that, and then. Continue, <laughs> you know, because you're right. After 20 minutes of that, it's like, well, what else you got? Yeah, y- well, yeah, you better, exactly. you better have songs. You better be able to go out there and do Always With You, Always With Me. Right. You know, he, you, you got to be able to go out there and play some songs that, you know, your girlfriend's going to like.
0: Sure. <laughs> yeah, if you're on a date and it's just like, yeah, let's go watch this guy shred. <laughs> <I>
2: <laughs> well, mean, you
1: know, I mean, early on, if you go to if you went to his early shows in the 80s, it was all uh, long-haired kids with black T-shirts. Right. And now if you go to the shows, you see people... <laughs> you know, married and maybe their kids. And, you know, it's, you know, a third of the audience is women. So (laughs) he has been able to reach people uh, emotionally uh, through the instrumental music.
0: Right. All right, John. So I got to cut to the chase here and ask the question that everyone's going to want to know, which is how do you record Joe's guitar? I mean, he's a guitar guy. He's one of those guys you think of when you think about guitar heroes. And how do you go about recording Joe?
1: In the beginning, we typically recorded the records probably the same way most people were recording rock records. Guitar player shows up, he's got a couple of guitars, a couple of amplifiers, handful of uh, stop boxes, and we would just get busy uh, doing the recordings in you know somewhat conventional way, plug some stuff in, try it out. If it doesn't work, try something else. Sure. But, you know, we were limited by resources and time. So we didn't get to indulge ourselves in hours and hours or weeks or months of coming up with uh, guitar sounds. We had to work pretty quickly. Right. So that eventually changed, of course, when the budgets for the records um, became uh, larger and we could spend some more time. And Joe's collection of guitar amplifiers and guitars, including vintage Fenders and Gibsons, continue to grow. And our palette of color, if you want to call it that, or our opportunities to really come up with something unusual, um, we could indulge ourselves a little bit more because we had a little bit more time and money to do that. Not only that, the studio technology was growing Uh, exponentially I mean it was crazy what was going on when we first started we had very little to work with sure and the processors that were starting to become available in the early 80s right up through the 90s you know opened the door to all kinds of possibilities for um, guitar effects besides just the typical distortion phase and flange and delays and right those things that were typically being used in rock records in the 70s So we had like Eventide Harmonizers, the first generation, and Joe and I just went nuts with those things. In fact, you can still buy those today that have a lot of the presets that Joe and I wrote for Eventide. Wow. And, you know, we continually push the envelope on what would be acceptable for a guitar sound on a record. Needless to say, you can hear some things in those records where you're probably wondering what we were smoking because (laughs) we made some decisions that even now, Joe and I look back and go, wow, what were we thinking? (laughs) (laughs) Right. I don't think that's even working. Why did we think that worked then? (laughs) But, um, you know, it was all in the effort to try to Uh, produce a sound that hadn't been heard before, not only in Joe's records, but in Joe's album. Because we can't just keep having the same guitar sounds for each song. Sure. I mean, even if we came up with a great rhythm guitar part, let's say... He pulls out one of his uh, guitars and he plugs it into a Marshall and cranks it up. I stick an SM57 on it, plug that into a knee preamp, and he starts just playing a really big, beautiful, crunchy rhythm guitar part. And I think, man, that sounds amazing. And he thinks that sounds amazing. We go ahead and we record double track rhythm guitars and do some other stuff and finish the song. Well, now we go to the next song. Well, we're not inclined to want to use that same Setup. Sure, we're inclined to want to do something different because we don't want to bore the fans. So he might try a different guitar. We might try a different amplifier. I might try a different microphone. I might try a different preamp. I might try, God knows what. I mean, anything that we had available to make make it still good and serve the song, but it was really important that no two songs on the record sounded identical. And boy, when you've got 10, 12 songs on an album and they're all guitars, that's um, a big order to fill. And for me as the engineer, there were a lot of times where I was going, wow, this just isn't as good a rhythm guitar sound as the third song we worked on two days ago. And, you know, I'm not happy about it. Mm. So Joe and I would sit down and try to figure out what we didn't like about it. Or, what I didn't like about it in some cases. And we would explore some different things until we finally came up with something that again served the song, but was still different than the other songs on the record. Right. So, if you ask me, you know, what's his setup or what's my setup, I would say the setup is anything goes, it just has to be good. Right. So, that would be like the quick answer to your question. Mm. Let's fast forward now 20 years. Um, By now, I developed the reamp, which maybe is a household word now. Sure. But in 94, when I first came up with the idea of reamping and actually built a box and made it available for people to actually purchase to do this process of taking um, a direct guitar track and feed it back into a guitar amplifier, it was pretty unheard of. Nobody had done it. Right. Um, at least there was no box that was available commercially for people to do it. So once I developed that, Joe embraced it and now Joe records pretty much everything he does direct. Huh. That's right. He plugs his guitar directly into, uh, typically a millennia preamp in the direct input and records his guitar flat with no EQ, no nothing. That allows us later to take that direct output from the recording and feed it into anything we want. We can feed it into stop boxes. We can feed it into guitar amplifiers. Sure. Um, We can uh, mic it any way we want. We can do it in different rooms. The choices are really endless. And that then allows us to really fine tune the guitar sound for each song. Hmm. So this is typically how it goes. Joe's at home writing, his guitar is being recorded direct, but he also, in his Pro Tools rig, dials up some sort of uh, guitar amplifier sim that he's just chosen. It might even be something as simple as, as a Sans app. He kind of just fools around and gets some kind of sound that that he likes. He might even add some effects to it. And that's just sort of a template to get the kind of the vibe and the feel for what he's looking for for the song. Then later, once the song has, has been developed and arranged, those recordings come back into a studio where they're played back to uh, typically a drummer and a bass player and to Joe, and they play along to it. So th- hmm. for instance, the drummer can choose to have a click. He can listen to any of the previously recorded tracks that Joe has recorded. You know, they'll play along with the track, and oftentimes Joe will be in the studio playing along with the band. And then once we have the drum and bass performance and sometimes a keyboard performance as a live track, the three or four players, including Joe, have got a really nice, complete live track from top to bottom, uh, we will... You know, essentially, be done with the other musicians. Then Joe and I will spend a week or two <laughs> back at a studio, maybe the same studio, maybe a different studio, where we now have a room full of guitar amplifiers, a room full of stomp boxes, sure. And every guitar track recorded, we have direct. Mm. So Joe and I will pick up, pick a song, and we'll say, okay, what do we like? about what's been recorded and the sounds, or what do we not like about it, and how can we change it and make it better? So if we like what he's done, like if he has a plugin that he particularly likes, like a Sans amp or something, and we think it fits the song and it works, then we'll leave it. If we go, well, no, that was a bad choice. That's just not working at all. We'll take his direct guitar recording We'll feed it into a reamp and then we'll send it into a guitar amplifier or a stomp box. I will mic it with any number of microphones that I have available and into any number of mic preamps I might have available. Again, it's a combination of all these things that will determine the ultimate sound of it. And that would be based on what kind of song it is. Sure. Joe's performances are brilliant. I mean, when he is at home playing by himself and working out his parts, he is really inspired. And he's coming up with some great feeling parts. Now, sometimes later on, once drums and bass are applied, we might say to ourselves, well, you know, you might be able to play that better. So then we might spend three or four days of Joe just playing uh, live against those tracks in a traditional way. Sure. Pick a guitar, pick an amp, pick a mic, pick a pre, off we go and... You know, we'll just spend the day him recording guitar in the studio. Typically, he's in the control room with me. Right. And we work together until we come up with uh, performances that he likes. But a lot of the performances, he's already performed at home, and they're brilliant. Sure. And so we have direct tracks of those, we can feed them back into guitar amplifiers anytime we want and change the sound anytime we want. So we can completely change the sonic character of a song, you know, the day before we mix it. Right. Because we have all that available to us now. Wow. So, well, there's your very long answer to your question. And... Um, There you have it.
0: (laughs) Wow. Well, you heard it here on the Recording Lounge podcast. This is how John records Joe's guitar. And, um, well, don't go spreading misinformation on the internet. This is is how it really goes down. (laughs) (laughs) Right. This is great because it leads us right into the discussion about the reamp box. Now, we all have seen reamping and reamp devices, but John is essentially the original creator of the original reamp box. So, uh, tell us the story about the reamp. Why? Why did you make it? When did you make it? it was it just sort of uh, happened like a flash of genius, or was there really a, a direct need or a problem that needed to be
1: solved? Uh, the genesis of the reamp started really as a problem that needed to be solved. Uh, Joe and I were mixing a live record of his, and when we got the tracks back to the studio, we noticed that the bass guitar amplifier track. I had this hideous buzz in it. Um, not sure how it got there, but it was there and it was unusable. We did have a clean DI track and a very good performance from Stu. But, um, you know, you don't really want to use just a clean DI track. Kind of really want some distortion on that. Sure. You know, give the sound of a live amplifier on stage. I right. think Stu was playing through some pretty big amps, and he had some growl to it, and we really wanted to try to recreate that. So, typically, uh, the way you would take the output of a tape recorder, which is at a plus four line level balanced output, and put it into a guitar amplifier, or a bass amplifier in this case, was to take a passive direct box, and with a sex change adapter, run the signal in through it backwards. Right. Um, It didn't work very well, never (laughs) really ever worked very well, but you would get some signal out of it. And basically you would just drop the gain down so that really hot plus four signal would hit the guitar amplifier at a slightly lower level, Right. um, making the guitar amplifier work a little bit better than if you were trying to hit it with a really hot level. Sure. So, um, we tried that, but both Joe and I were very unhappy with the way it sounded. And I just started thinking, why don't we just get a transformer in this box and wire it up with the right connectors to lower the gain and maybe even put a potentiometer in there to uh, adjust the gain even more, Mm -hmm. fine tune it, if you will, right? and use that for this type of um, process. Sure. So I went to a friend of mine who was a very good tech, and I explained to him the problem. And he said, well, you need a transformer, and you need a potentiometer, and you need a pad, and you need this, and you need that. And Well, you know, maybe I can come up with something. so we experimented with some different transformers and some different circuits, and we finally came up with a box that I could take into the studio, and I could feed the output of a Studer tape recorder, into the box, and then into a bass amplifier, and then adjust the trim pot on it. So the amplifier was basically seeing the same level you would expect to see coming out of a bass right. guitar. sure. Therefore, the amplifier would actually perform as if a... Bass guitar was actually plugged into it. And right. Then you could actually adjust the, the level of the amplifier and the tone. We could mic it up and then re record it onto another track and basically end up with a live sounding bass track. So right. that's in fact what we did. Um, it was perfectly acceptable. It sounded great. And so I just, you know, kept the box yeah. and started using it on other projects. For other purposes, sure.
0: Yeah. So, so tell our listeners why is a reamp box different than a direct box, or what makes reamp boxes so cool about you know the design and how they work?
1: The reamp is not unlike a direct box. You think about what is a direct box? A direct box takes a, um, a low output signal, like from a guitar, and it converts it through a transformer or or actively. To the same kind of output signal a microphone might have, and that way it, it allows you to interface guitar to a, a microphone preamplifier in a console. A reamp is just the opposite. It takes the output of your DAW or a tape recorder mm-hmm. and converts a very hot plus four line level signal, which is typically balanced, down to an unbalanced almost minus fifty signal that. Uh, can be fed back into a guitar amplifier. So the guitar amplifier actually thinks that a guitar is plugged into it, right. not a DAW. Right. So the process is really, you would take your guitar, plug it into a direct box, record that onto one of the tracks on your DAW. You can split the signal and go into an amplifier, but always record your guitar direct, and then take that direct signal and then feed it back out later, anytime, anyplace, anywhere, into a guitar amplifier's stop box. In other words, it's kind of in a way an insurance policy that if you really like your performance but you don't like the sound, hey, you can always change the sound later on um, by taking your direct track and feeding it through a reamp and back out into an amplifier. But people do all sorts of things with them. Oh, yeah. I see people reamping vocals. I see people Mm reamping drums. I see people reamping, you know, they have an organ part, but now they want it distorted. So they'll just take the signal off the DAW that's clean and they'll just throw it out into a guitar amplifier and re-record it. Yeah. So there's endless possibilities of what you can do now that we have a device that can uh, interface DAWs or tape recorders back into instrument amplifiers and stomp boxes.
0: Man, that's so interesting. And like now reamping is so common. I mean, it's it's not even like a, you know, uh, I mean, it's a household thing in the studio world like, oh, it's recorded DI and we can reamp it later if we need to, right? Uh, I mean, that's so common. So, uh, but so how did you get from, you know, making your original box to it becoming as common as it is today? Like did you push that? Did you advertise? Did you, I mean, what
1: happened with that? After six months of me doing this and some of the local studios, people started to take notice. Right. A couple of engineer friends of mine said, hey, uh, you know, we'd really uh, like to have one of these. Um, <laughs> sure. And I got kind of tired of loaning it to people. So yeah. I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to build maybe five or six of these for my friends and I'll just sell them, you know, for cost. Sure. So I built some, and I was using off-the-shelf UTC transformers that were actually quite expensive at the time. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, word got out, and people started using them and sharing them. And then pretty soon, people started calling me and saying, hey, you know, we want one. Right. <laughs> and uh, so I thought to myself, do I really want to be in the business of making a audio interface yeah. box? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, I was a working engineer. I didn't really have the time to get into manufacturing. Yeah. But people just kept asking me. So after about a year, I finally decided that I'd set some money aside and build 50 of these boxes. Now, at the time, I didn't even have a name for it. Hmm. And I eventually, after sitting around talking with some friends of mine, I came up with the Reamp. Right. And um, at first I was going to call it the morning after box, <laughs> um, thinking that, you know, if you've made a mistake, you can use this box the next day. <laughs> right. But I think the reamp kind of describes exactly what it does. So I thought that would just be a good name and that just stuck with it. Yeah. Myself and a couple of friends of mine spent a couple of weekends and we built 50 reamps. That was really wow. the first box that was commercially available Right. It looked a little bit like a Countryman direct box, mm-hmm. um, almost the same size, slightly different. But I really kind of stole the design from the Countryman with the recessed um, front and back panels, and it would, you know, it was a chassis that basically would slide into a aluminum uh, tube, yeah, and you know, it's all held together with one screw on the bottom. Yeah, they were all hand wired, and. At this point, I was still using an off-the-shelf UTC transformer, which again was very expensive. Mm. So I built the 50 Reamps and they sat around in my house for a long time, for maybe six months (laughs) to Mm. a year because I couldn't really sell them. Mm. Um, No one was particularly interested in the process. I remember giving a lot of them away. I would send them to a lot of the studios like in Los Angeles, and and give them to some engineers who I thought might want to use them. Mm -hmm. Many of them kept them and continued to use them and started to tell their friends about it. Some people just didn't understand. I remember, um, I think it was Alan Sides at Oceanway. I sent him one and he sent it back to me and he goes, I don't know what to do with this. Why would I want to reamp anything? I always get it right the first time, (laughs) something like that. Um, So eventually the 50 were gone. And then to make a long story short, I built 50 more, and then I built 50 more, then I built 50 more. Wow. And um, for the next 17 years, I built probably 3,000 of them and eventually started selling them uh, worldwide. Uh, to many, many uh, major recording artists and recording engineers mm. until I got to the point where I didn't really want to be in the reamp business anymore. A lot of things had changed over those 17 years. We got away from analog tape, people were going to digital workstations. I was no longer selling reamps to professional recording engineers. A lot of the reamps that were being sold were being sold to prosumers or young newbie engineers who quite honestly didn't necessarily know how to use them. Mm. And some of them were even coming back blown up because people were sticking their guitar amplifier outputs into the reamp thinking Ooh. it was some kind of a speaker soaker. Yeah. You know, I never had that problem for maybe the first 10 years when I was working with professional recording engineers. Everyone knew Exactly how to use it.
0: Now you can clear this up better than probably anybody, but what was the issue? I heard about some issues with like the patent or the name or like copywriting reamp or something like that. What what was the deal with that?
1: I felt it was really important that the reamp be of really high quality because I thought that if it wasn't of a high quality, people using them would quickly become unsatisfied with with the fact that maybe Um, It didn't have the headroom, or it didn't have the frequency response, or it just didn't perform adequately. So one of the ways I protected the quality of the reamp that were going to be pushed to the market was to have a patent. And that way I was going to keep, hopefully, large manufacturers who would just kind of knock it off with cheap transformers and just flood the market with it. Right. Uh, I was hoping that maybe if they saw that I had a patent pending on it, they wouldn't be likely to jump into the market. Now, to be honest, I never really expected to actually receive a patent, even though I put $10,000 into the process. I felt that if I just had patent pending written on the reamp box, that would be enough to discourage competition. Right. Once the reamp was established in the market, then I didn't particularly care about competition because the, the name and its reputation for high quality would have been uh, established. And then I felt like I could probably easily compete with people who were gonna do uh, quick knockoffs. Sure. Once the reamping process became popular, I started to see other people um, start producing versions of the reamp. Some of them were active. And I believe they did that thinking that they could work around the patent by making a active version, changing the circuit. I didn't really want to discourage people from making reamps, but I didn't want them using the name. And I didn't want them uh, making low quality reamps and discouraging people from the process. Sure. So most of the people, the vendors who were building reamps, I cut deals with that were very friendly you know, like a dollar a year licensing fee to build REAMPs. So um, eventually I got an offer by Radial Engineering in Canada to purchase not only the name REAMP, but to also purchase the patent which I had for the REAMP circuit. So we negotiated a deal um, and they eventually started uh, producing my version of the reamp, which is a passive version with a really high-quality transformer. In fact, today they call it, I think, the JCR, right. which is the John Cunoverti reamp. So they also make a, um active version, and they also make a much less expensive version.
0: Wow. Well, that is another great story from John, and you heard it here on the Recording Lounge podcast Um, This concludes part one of our interview with John. Make sure to tune in next time to part two. We've got a lot more great stories and cool information coming up. You're going to learn a lot. Um, John, thanks again for taking the time to answer all these questions and tell all these great stories. I'm I'm loving it. I think everybody else is going to love part two. So we'll see you next time on the Recording Lounge podcast.